Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hello, my name is Matt, and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, sorry about my uh, rock star entrance at the very last minute. Wow. Um, I wanted to thank Sam and Lois Ann for being so flexible and helpful and getting me up here and for the gourmet meal we had in your car on the way over here. You know, I get to, I get to do this a little bit. I get to move around the country a little and, and do these things. And I can tell you there's one tradition that we always maintain, and that's the tradition that says AA will never be organized. We just, we're super good about that. Um, but you guys pulled it off and, and helped me out, and, and I'm actually in the middle of moving my family from Long Beach, California to Seattle, Washington. I mean, I'm in the middle. When I get home tomorrow, I'm loading a van. So it was a little tricky, and I, I made some mistakes with the scheduling, but I'm really, really grateful to be here. Um, I was on the plane. I, do, I haven't been thinking about this at all, quite honestly. <laughs> I have a lot going on. And uh, and I like being with my family also, quite frankly. I More than anything, I like to be with my wife and my children. My wife. Um, but uh, <laughs> rigorous honesty. They're, they're teenagers. But uh, But I was thinking on the way up here, how can I pay back AA? How can I ever pay back AA? So I'm just grateful that you give me, you know, I can put one more penny in the bank and say, I'm trying, I'm trying, God, I'm trying, you know. So my sobriety is May 16th, 1993, and my home group is Hermosa Beach Men's Stag meets on Monday nights at 830. And if you're in town and you're a man, <laughs> come to my meeting. If you're in town and you're a woman, we, there's a women's stag right behind our meeting in the other room. So please come. Uh I always pray before I get up to do this that I spend just a little bit of time on what it was like, and I talk a lot about what happened and what it's like now, because I love recovery. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I am a completely different person than I was when I came here, and I thought I would never change. And I can tell you the um, change has not been very dramatic on the outside, uh, but on the inside, it's been profound for me. And that's kind of the challenge of doing this, you know. I have, I've really done this, I don't know, I've done this a lot. And um, I've never successfully described what AA has done for me. I just can't do it. I just don't, I have, it is not possible with my vocabulary to capture what's happened. So I have to tell you the story, you know. And since I want to talk a lot about recovery, I'll, you know, May 16th, 1993 is my sobriety date. I'll tell you about May 1st, 1993. <clears throat> things were not good. <laughs> um, I'd like to, I'd love it if that would just sum it up, but uh, uh, I was 30 years old. I weighed 108 pounds. Uh, I had been fired from a job that was beneath me. <laughs> Again, yeah. Um, I lived in a, I was just talking to Abel about this. I lived in an apartment on Avenue A in South Catalina, Redondo Beach, meaning the ocean was right outside my back door and I hadn't left that apartment except to walk next door to the liquor store for about six months. Um, 
Before I got fired from that job that was beneath me, I was a restaurant manager. So I try not to tell this whole story, but this might be helpful. You know, um, I was a rock and roll musician for 10 years, and I got fired from the band for drinking too much. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? You know, I thought I kind of picked the right occupation for my proclivities. But... uh and, you know, I laugh about it now, but I had a dream, and it came true, and I was touring and making albums and writing songs, and I'd go and record them, and then I'd play them, and there were girls singing them back at me, and I'd waited all my life for that. And I drank myself out of that job, and it it was my dream, you know. And I lived in the East Coast when I got fired from that last band, and I came home, and I got this job at this restaurant. And I remember when I got the job, I thought, I got a job as a waiter, and I thought, well, that's cool, because if you're a waiter, you're still kind of an artist, you know? <laughs> you're just waiting for your comeback, right? Then I, I went to college. I have two degrees and all that, but as soon as I went to college and graduated, I went on the road with the band. So I got this job as a waiter, thinking someday I'll get another band together, and uh, a couple of days later, the uh, manager came down, and he said, hey, I just looked at your resume. He said, you went to college. I said, yeah. And he said, uh, you want to be the manager? And I was like, no, because uh, that's even lamer than being a waiter in my mind, right? Because if you're a restaurant manager, then you're really in a, a restaurant manager. You're not an artist anymore, you know. And, uh, and I sort of hesitantly agreed to it because I didn't have any money and I owed everybody money. And um, it was a bad situation. And I was a full-blown drunk. So he took me around the restaurant. And he goes, well, if you're going to be the manager, here's the schedule for the waitresses. And I looked at all these names, all these girls, and I looked at all their birth dates. And I figured out they were all about 18 years old. <laughs> I was like, maybe this job isn't going to be so bad, you know. And uh, I'm 30. That's about right. And then uh, everybody hates me. It's okay. I'm a speaker in AA. I'm not running for president. It's okay. Uh and then they took me up and said, here's how the meat schedule gets delivered at a certain time. And then here are the keys to the bar. And I was like, this job's perfect for me. You know, all my life I've been developing skills that will help me in this job. And, um, and that's pretty much that value system was how I managed that job. So. I'd hover over those, these, these people used to come in called customers and they made the whole job lame and, and, uh, I would hover over them like, leave, you know, like, when are you gonna leave? And, and they'd leave and then I'd get the waitresses up to the bar and the drinks around the house, right? And the idea was, you know, get drunk with a couple of these waitresses and go home with somebody. But I'm alcoholic and what normally happened, I mean, occasionally I did go home with somebody, but what normally happened was, They'd come bopping up and go, hey, it's two in the morning and we just got an apartment and there's a hot tub and do you want to come over? And I'd go, why would we leave here? You know, I got a whole bar and I'm drinking and I just want to drink. And they would leave and I'd fall asleep in the bar and um, wake up and run out the door. I remember occasionally... The, the morning guy would be coming down the street and I'd wake up and I'd like run out of the restaurant. The books aren't done. The bar's a mess. I'd run out in the parking lot. You know, it's 6.30 in the morning. Only my car's in the parking lot. And I'd crawl into my car and hide in the floor of my car. <laughs> and he'd pull up right next to me every single time. 
and walked by. And I had I convinced myself he didn't know. And I'm lying on the floor of my car. So just before they fired me, <laughs> which was a huge shock to me, uh, one of the waitresses came up and said, I'm pregnant. And, uh, you know, I come from a family where my mom and dad were married for 50 years to each other, you know, and I got taught all these lessons, and and I couldn't believe it, you know, and, and this girl was 18 years old-ish, and... Uh, and I remember thinking, and I just want to be honest, I want to tell you who's in front of you tonight is, I remember thinking, not her, she's selfish and self-centered. I really thought that. That's who I was. She's ruining my life, not I'm ruining her life. I remember I used to say, when I got into AA, I used to say she got pregnant and my sponsor would say, you know, you had a significant part in that and you need to stop saying it that way. Anyway, um, I stormed out of that. She she literally told me she was pregnant. I walked upstairs, got fired. They didn't even know about her. They just got fired for a list of other things. I acted like I had a car in the parking lot still. And what I had was the key to a car. <laughs> I just didn't know where the matching car was anymore. So I was taking the bus to work, but I acted like I had a car because I wanted, you know, I had ego. I had tons and tons of ego. And I slammed the door and went out in the employee parking lot, and I had to wait a while and then crawl around. And I went to the, uh, I went to the um, bus stop, and the bus stop, oddly enough, is right in front of the Hermosa Beach Alano Club, where my home group meets now. But I didn't know what an Alano Club was, and I didn't care. And there was a, uh, also a school there, like a community center, and they taught young, um, like uh, mentally challenged or uh, autistic, or you know challenged uh, young adults how to live on their own, like how to pay their bills and stuff. So I walk up there. I got snot coming out of my nose. I weigh about 112. I haven't quite hit bottom yet. <laughs> and I uh, walk up to the bus stop, and there's about 10 or 12 of these young adults who have, a, you know, are overcoming their difficulties and living within their challenges. And I'm standing there, and that bus just can't come fast enough. You know, I'm so humiliated that the, I just want to die. And, uh, I didn't, I never lost a job like that. You know, I used to be somebody a year and a half before that. I was playing at CBGB's in New York and now I'm here getting fired from Marie Callender's. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and I, this girl got pregnant and she's not a nice person. I decided and, uh, I'm standing at the bus stop and I'm looking down Pacific Coast Highway and I step out into the street to see if the bus was coming and 10 mentally challenged people yelled, don't stand in the street, don't stand in the street and scared the hell out of me. And, uh, and I thought they saw a bus that I didn't see because about a week before that, I hadn't slept for a few days and I walked out into my living room and there was a police car parked in my living room and I saw it and I touched it and I knew that it wasn't there. And I was standing at that bus stop and these people were much better at waiting for a bus than I was. And I thought maybe there's a bus coming and I can't even see it. And I decided to go home and drank myself to death. About two miles from my house, my mother, who I dearly loved, was dying of cancer. I loved my mother. And during that time, that six or eight months where I lived in there by myself, occasionally I would have a, a moment of clarity or a pause, and I would think, I'm going to call my mom. I want to go see my mom, you know. And I'd call my mom up, and I'd say, Mom, I'm going to come visit you. 
And I believed when I said that, that I was going to go see my mom, because I love and respect my mother, and I'm the youngest of four in an Irish Catholic family, and I love that. I love being Irish Catholic, and my mother was very tender with me, and my father, they taught me all sorts of great lessons, and I just thought they were the coolest people, and I would call her and say, I'm going to come see you, and my mom would say the same thing every time. She would say, that would be lovely, darling. Every single time I did that. And I would hang up the phone, you know, and I would, if you put a gun to my head and said, are you going to go see your mom right now? I'd say, of course I'm going to go see my mom. I just told her I'm going to come see her. She lives two miles away. And I would sometime between hanging up the phone and getting dressed or walking to the door, I'd start thinking of all the warrants I had out for my arrest. And this teenage girl was pregnant, you know, and uh, I hadn't worked in a long time and they were a little foggy on what I was doing and I was thousands of dollars in debt, you know. And I just think, you know, I'm going to go see mom, but first I'm going to have a drink. And once I had that thought, I couldn't unthink it. Once I thought I'm going to have a drink, I remember waking up some days thinking, don't drink. And once I thought, don't drink, I knew I was going to drink. And I hated it. I didn't want to drink anymore. Who would want to drink anymore? I had burned down a beautiful life. You know, my parents were married for 50 years. My father respected my mother. My father was a boisterous Irish guy, so full of life and so funny and fought in World War II, salt of the earth guy, you know. My mom was this real quiet school teacher. And they taught me, you know, how a man and a woman interacted and how a man treated a woman. And they taught me all these lessons. And, you know, when that teenage girl was eight months pregnant, I pushed her down a flight of stairs. And I didn't want to hurt her. I didn't want to hurt that baby. I just didn't feel anything for him. To be totally honest with you, I didn't have a single feeling for them. And what happened was... She was going to go to the doctor, and she asked if I would come, and she said, really nicely, maybe you shouldn't drink today. And I heard a screaming woman on my porch telling me not to drink anymore. And that isn't what happened. And I pushed her just to get her out of the doorway, and I pushed her too hard, and I knew I pushed her too hard, and I slammed the door real fast because I didn't want responsibility for what happened. I went inside... And I drank. And I didn't go look to see what happened. So that was May 1st, 1993. That's what alcoholism did to me. I had every advantage. I had two people that loved and cared about me. And I sponsor a lot of people in AA. And I know that's not true for a lot of us. I know that's not true. I had a, well, I wouldn't say a functional family, but certainly an interesting and fun family to be a part of. There was a lot of weird stuff going on. My brothers were alcoholics. My dad was manic depressive. But I thought everybody was awesome because I was way later. I, I'm one of the few people that still thinks Catholics should not believe in birth control because I wouldn't be here if they did. <laughs> I was born seven years after my brothers and sisters. I was an Irish surprise is what my father used to call me. But I had all this, this character lessons and all these great examples, and I, I pawned it all to pay for the party. And, you know, I've just told you a little tiny bit of what it was like. Take my word for it. I told you the tip of the iceberg of what it was like for me 
when I was drinking, and it was a moonscape on the outside of my life. But it was so much filthier and so much dirtier in here. And I couldn't even go in here. That was unacceptable. Because I knew better, and if you know better, it's just hell up here. You know, I was telling Abel, I, I live next to the ocean, and sometimes at night I'd walk around because I couldn't un- figure out what that sound was. There was this... <laughs> and I go, holy crap, what is that? And I'd walk around my apartment. It was the ocean. It's a consistent sound. It never stops. But I never went outside my apartment. I oiled my screen door at 3 in the morning, you know. I did all sorts of ocean-stopping activities. <laughs> and they never worked. And you know what? I would wake up in the morning and say, don't drink today. And I know now, being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for 21 years, that I might as well have said, hold back the ocean today. Go stop the Pacific from crashing on the beach. I had that much power over alcohol. So on May 14th, or 13th, I don't really know when, my brother called, and he said it's Mother's Day, which I think is kind of looking back now. Remember when Bill called Henrietta Cyberling and she called Dr. Bob? Remember why he couldn't come? It's Mother's Day. He brought a potted plant home and he passed out under the table. And my brother called and said, it's Mother's Day, and we just want to make sure you show up because we think it's Mom's last Mother's Day. And I remember thinking, because I'm the youngest and I'm sick of all these people picking on me all the time, I remember thinking, why would he think I'm not going to show up? Maybe it was the 38 times I called my mom and said, I'm going to come visit you and never went one single time. But I forgot about that the second I started drinking again. So I said, of course I'm going to come. Now, my brother was sober at this time about 14 years. Uh, He had ended up living in his car before he got sober. And he was my hero. He played the drums. He looked like Paul McCartney. I thought he was the coolest guy on earth. And he said, I'll come get you because I know you're having car trouble. Because <laughs> when you're Irish Catholic and your car trouble consists of, I have this key. I just don't know where the car is. That's car trouble. And we don't like to embarrass you. You know, Why would we bring out the big elephant in the living room? Let's just call it car trouble. So he came to get me, and on his way, I was like, oh, God, you know, looking around the apartment. I had a lot of explaining to do. (laughs) I had SWAT-proof blankets on the windows. Anybody have those? You know, they're going to stop the SWAT team. And uh, that's conniving to get punky old me out of my apartment. I had all sorts of weird stuff going on there, bottles on the floor. I used to make collages at night. I'd rather not get into that. And... uh, and I had dishes in the sink from the Reagan administration, you know, because I was a single guy. And uh, my brother came, and I walked outside, and I remember the look on his face, because I didn't know I weighed 108 pounds. Because what alcohol does to me is it takes a little bite. And I've been around here a long time, you know, and I think if alcohol took our, our happiness and our lives and all the worthwhile things in one big swoop, we'd all come to AA, right? Immediately. We'd all get sober. We'd all work the steps. We'd be so motivated. But alcohol took a bite, and I adjusted down. And it took another bite, and I adjusted down. And it took another bite. And pretty soon, I was living in squalor, and I had no idea that I was living in squalor. It seemed like my life 
was the only real life there was. And my brother saw me, and he took me down to Mother's Day, and I still don't know. My sister actually tried to describe what that Mother's Day was like to me about three months ago. And it was awful. Apparently, I said really inappropriate things, and I don't remember exactly because I'd been up all night drinking. And uh, my brother took me home, and on the way home, we got in a fight. And uh, we, that was not unusual. Any other Irish Catholics raise your hand? I know you're here. <laughs> okay. About half of you raised your hand. I appreciate that. Uh, but Irish people and Catholic people, with the way we get in fights, you know, scream and yell at each other. We didn't, still neither of us knows what this fight was about. We scream and yell at each other. It was like two swans on a lake, right? Swans are floating along, floating along. They, bah, 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 bah. Okay, see you at Thanksgiving. All right, see you later. That's how Irish people are. They're like, there's no big deal. Like, we yell at each other like we're going to kill each other. But this fight just got me. And I got out of my car. I think I was just so humiliated from every step of that last few months and then seeing everybody. Whatever the reason was, I slammed the door and I went inside and I decided I wasn't going to lose this fight. And I waited for him to get home. And I think God took over. Because I picked up the phone and I called my brother. He lived quite a ways away. And I started screaming at him. And I was laying out my reasons why I was right about whatever it was, you know. And I would love to know, here's this dirt bag. I, I'm abusing women. I have a pregnant teenage girl across town. I can't get a job. I'm totally in debt. The police are after me. Drug dealers are after me. Uh, I haven't seen anybody in a long time. And I thought I had the moral higher ground. My brother was working a job, visiting my mom, had a house. But I thought, I'm going to win this based on my position. And I just screamed and yelled at him. And when I finally got done talking, it was not a discussion. It was I was yelling at him. I was standing, and the phone was on the floor, and I had the cord stretched up to my ear. And I ran out of steam, and I, he quietly said into the phone, Matthew, I think you have a problem with alcoholism. And what happened next, I believe, looking back on it, because I can't describe, I don't know why it happened, and I think I had a moment of grace. And my, my sponsor told me when I was newly sober that grace is an unwarranted gift. It's an undeserved gift. And it wasn't that my brother had said that. I'd heard that before from other people. But he said, I think you have a problem with alcoholism. And without me even thinking about it, without me premeditating in any way, out of my mouth came, of course I do. And I don't know why I said that. I can honestly tell you, I didn't think I was about to say that. I thought I was about to start lying again. And I, I remember what the carpet looked like in my apartment that moment. I remember the beige phone and the cord all stretched out. And I remember the dust particles through the sunlight, through the Venetian blinds. Because just for a second, I stepped into the present moment. And I hadn't been there in years. And it was just a huge relief. And my brother said the funniest thing. He said, don't go anywhere. <laughs> I was like, well, okay. You know, I was going to move to that end of the couch in a couple more weeks. But if you got plans, you know, don't go anywhere. You know, where was I going to go? And my brother showed up at my door faster than should be physically possible for him to have gotten there. And I'm so grateful to him because 
My brother saw a window of willingness. And if you've been doing this a while and you do what the book says and you work with others to save your own life, you can see that. And it's like gold. If you see that window of willingness, you got to jump, right? And I didn't know any of this. I'm just humiliated dirtbag on the other end of the phone. And he said, don't go anywhere. And he came. He was right in my doorway. And he opens the door and he inhales. And he goes, hey, let's go to the beach. <laughs> this is a little ripe in there. And uh, we went down to the beach and sat on a lifeguard stand. And I expected when we got to the beach, my brother would kick my ass and I'd never drink again. I really did. I thought my brother will beat me and I will stop drinking. I had some history with him to believe that might be the tactic he was going to use. <laughs> but I also kind of wish somebody would do that. Because I hated myself. The person whose company, I hated you because I didn't like your company because you made me uncomfortable. But the person who made me more uncomfortable than anyone else on earth was in my skin. And I woke, I was hoping someone would just kick my ass, you know. And he didn't. He looked at me for a long time. And then he just started talking to me about how he felt when my mom and dad kicked him out of our house when he was 18 years old. And I remember that day because I was 11. And I couldn't believe we were doing it to someone in our family. I was so scared. And he started talking to me about how he felt when his wife and son kicked them out of their house. And I remember that day because I was about 14. And he called me because he had no one left. He called his little brother. And he cried into the phone. And I remember saying to him, maybe you should stop drinking. And I remember exactly what he said. He said, you don't understand. And then he started talking to me about how he felt when he lived in his car. And I remember when he lived in his car because I was 16 years old. I was going to high school and I'd borrow my dad's car and I'd try to find him. And I'd go behind the YMCA and eventually I found him. He used to park behind this school that had an outdoor shower. And I'd look in his car and if he breathed, I'd go to school. A lot of times he wasn't in the car. And right in the middle of all that, he started talking to me about how I felt sitting on that lifeguard stand. And I couldn't believe it. I was so surprised that anyone on earth knew how I felt. I couldn't, couldn't believe it. And my guard fell away. And I ran out of cigarettes. And those two things are very important to my recovery. Because <laughs> when I ran out of cigarettes, I got tired of listening to him. So I raised my hand up and said, you know, man, you're right. I got to go to AA. And he kind of focused on me and he goes, he laughed. He goes, you're not going to AA, man. You're going to a hospital. And I looked at him and I got a little nervous and I said, yeah, I can't do that. You know, I'm busy. <laughs> Anybody else busy? Yeah. You know, what was I busy doing? I hadn't worked in months. Like, and I, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, who's not going to pay my bills? I'm the guy not paying my bills right now. You know, who's not going to, you know, answer the phone? I'm the guy that does not answer that phone. That's my job. And, uh, and he goes, I said, how long? And he goes, 30 days. And I go, there is no way I can leave all this for 30 days. And I was dead serious. I hadn't done anything in months. Anything. I walked next door to the liquor store. I pawned a couple guitars. And that's all I ever did. And uh, he ignored me. And he walked me up to my porch. And he said, this weird thing. I walked up to the porch and I was pretending to fumble for my keys. And I never locked the door from the outside. 
because I didn't, I was terrified of locking myself out of my apartment. It was my capsule. So I knew I didn't need to unlock the door, but I was kind of messing around. I don't know why. And he goes, hey, Matthew, don't die. And I looked at him and I thought, uh-oh, he knows about the gun that I put in my mouth at night. Because I had this gun. My roommate, who was living somewhere else for a while and renting the apartment, he had this big gun with these hollow point bullets. And I used to stand in front of the window with it in my mouth and pray for courage. And I knew I couldn't kill myself because it would hurt my mother. It would hurt my father. But I really wanted to. And he said, don't die. And I was. it felt like someone pulled my pants down. I felt like he knew what I was doing at night. But he didn't. He just saw my skeleton. And he saw my dead eyes. And he was an AA member for a long time. And he knew what was coming. And he knew it was coming fast. If you are 108 pounds and you're five foot ten, you eventually have a heart attack from alcoholism. It's a fact. That's how you die. And on May 16th, 1993, the phone rang. And I had been up all night getting ready for rehab. <laughs> you know. I'm not a slacker. You know, I'm a lot of things. And I answered it because I thought it was my brother and it was this woman who said, hey, your baby was born today and we've been looking all over for you. And I can honestly tell you, I had forgotten about that. And I, she said, can you come to the hospital? And I said, yes. And I ran outside with my key. And I was like, here, car, 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 you know. And I had this horrible hangover, and it was a really bright, sunny day. Because I'd been up all night. I passed out by the phone. And I eventually did find my car, and it had a whole bunch of parking tickets on it. And I threw them in the back seat. And I got in my car, and I took forever to get it going. And I, I think this is such a great example of alcoholism. You know, alcoholism is a disease of selfishness and self-centeredness, right? We read it in the book. We see it at our meetings. <laughs> we live it in our lives. But this is a great example. I drove to the hospital where I was born. Because <laughs> that's where babies come from, right? They weren't there. And uh, and had I been paying attention, I would have known they weren't there. But I'm yelling at the poor volunteer nurse and all 108 scary pounds of me. And she kept saying, they're not here. You can get as mad as you want. There's nobody by that name here. And and I went back outside and I leaned my head on my steering wheel and I remembered where they were and I drove to the other hospital and I ran upstairs and I was running down the hall and I turned into this hospital room and I was not prepared. I wasn't thinking. And I came around the corner and there was Anna. And, you know, um, if any of you have ever seen a woman who's just had a baby, she looks a lot like a truck just ran her over, you know, like... Her hair's all messed up, and it's like a Picasso. Like, her eyes are almost on the other side of her face. Her whole body just changed shape. And she, Anna looked like that, and I can honestly tell you, she never looked more beautiful to me ever than she did right then. And I wasn't prepared for that level of reality and that level of profound beauty. And she got out of bed, and she was happy to see me. And the last time I saw her, I pushed her down a flight of stairs. And I forgot that I did that until she got out of bed. And she's coming at me, and I'm like, oh, my God, she's going to hug me. I don't want her to hug me. I'm a piece of filth. I don't want that coming near me. And she stopped, and I thought, oh, God, great. And she turned, and she reached into this glass, sort of rectangular, thick 
plexiglass box and she pulled out an angel of God named Phoebe Rose. She handed me Phoebe Rose. And I would love to stand here in front of all you nice people and tell you that I had an awakening. I would love to tell you that I felt close to this baby. But I felt like dirt. I felt like trash. I felt worse than I've ever felt in my whole life. She was beautiful. And I was hideously ugly. I couldn't take it. I wanted to get as far away from them as I possibly could. And the first words out of my life, what my mouth in front of my daughter was a lie. And I said, everything's going to be okay. And I prayed. I prayed as I backed away from them. I was in that room for a minute. And my prayer was, I hope these two women never see me again. Because I'm going to hurt them. It's what I do. And I'm not going to mean it. And I'm not going to care. Because i got to put it back here in the pile of tough stuff I don't care about. And I got out of there and I was going home to the gun. Plan B. And my brother was standing on my porch. And he said, get in the car. My sponsor says the most spiritual words on earth are get in the car. And he... uh Threw me in his car and he took me to the hospital. Scariest day of my life was May 16th, 1993. Hands down, scariest day of my life. Walking into that place in Palm Springs. I didn't know those people. I didn't have my medicine. Second scariest day of my life was 30 days later. Walking out of that hospital. I only have these 40 friends. (laughs) These are my best friends. We're going to be friends for life. My rehab friends. We are never, ever going to let each other down. Ever. I will know them. They are my blood brothers. And my brother picked me up and he drove me home. I had gained 47 pounds in the hospital. My body went, all right, no more vodka and donuts. And he dropped me off at my house and he said, another hilarious thing. He said, go to a meeting. And I remember thinking, these AA people are a little intense, you know. Go to a meeting. I've been 30 days in a hospital. I got a brand new baby. I got a mother who's dying of cancer. I owe everybody. I got stuff to do. I got to get a job and cure cancer. I got a lot on my shoulders, you know. And I go, and I lied. I lie like first thing out of my mouth, lie. And I said, you know, that's a great idea. That's what I'm going to do. And I walked up to my front door and I opened my door and somebody handed me a beer. Actually, it wasn't a beer. It was a Coors. <laughs> Sorry. All you Coors drinks are going, what is he talking about? And I looked in there, and they were snorting cocaine on my glass table. There was smoking pot in my kitchen. All my Olympic events were happening in there. And I hadn't had a visitor in a year. And there were 30 people partying in my apartment because that's the kind of people I hung around with. So I backed out, and I put a beer on my porch, and I ran away. Who here is in your first year of sobriety? Raise your hand if you're in your first year of sobriety. All right. I want to be totally honest with you. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I ran away not because I'd had a spiritual foundation in that hospital. I ran away not because I had a moment of clarity. I ran away for one reason and one reason only. I remember exactly what happened in my thinking. I was stunned that I had a beer in my hand. I hadn't had a beer in 30 days, and I couldn't believe my luck. And I looked at these people that I had lowered myself to spend all my time with. And I thought, Matthew, all you have in your whole life 
All you can hang your hat on is 30 days of sobriety. Just like the young woman over there with the red hair. You got 30 days of sobriety. And that's all I had, right? And I didn't want to lose it on those losers. That was the only extent of my thinking. And I ran away. And I thought I, I could very likely have been running to a bar or a liquor store. I did not know where I was running to. I ran for a while and I ran into a, I went right up into a payphone, a phone booth. There's some young people here. They were glass and uh, they had like these doors. You're going to have to Google image it. I can't even describe it. And they had phones the size of nuclear warheads in them. And I went in there and uh, I looked up AA, Mr. Two Degrees. I got a degree in literature and a degree in uh, religious studies. I was prone to alcoholism. And uh, I couldn't find AA in the phone book, honest. I'm looking in the back under embarrassing stuff you should never have to look up in your adult life. And it's not back there. It's in the front, right near AAA. And, uh, and I called and I, and I called AA and the guy was like, I'm, I'm like, I told him almost everything I've told you so far. <laughs> I'm like, oh, the rock star, beer, Coors, baby, ah! And, and, uh, and the guy was so great. He listened to this blubbering, you know. I thought he was going to help me, so I was informing him of my issues. And he said, yeah, yeah, where are you? And I go, I'm on the corner of Burl and Redondo Beach Boulevard. And he goes, okay, hold on. And I hear him flipping through some papers. And he goes, oh, my God, that's so weird. I said, what? And he said... There's an AA meeting right across the street from where you're standing, and it's going to start in 15 minutes. I know. And you know what I said? What do you think I should do? <laughs> Honestly. I was like, that's great. It's really nice you guys are getting together. What are you going to do for me? I got problems. I just explained. And the guy was so funny. He was silent for a minute. And then he goes, I think you should go to the meeting. And I, but he said it more like, I think you should go to the meeting. And I went to the meeting and it was a big speaker meeting in Southern California. We have, it's not unusual to have four or 500 people every week at a speaker meeting. And it was one of those. And I swear to God, there was one chair with a light on it that was empty and like a big bright spotlight. And I was walking, strutting my new 47 pounds improved self to the seat acting like I wasn't terrified, and I was terrified. And I walked up and sat down, and there was a speaker, and he wore a suit. I'm looking around, and I'm scared to death. And the guy gets up to the podium, he puts his hands on the podium very calmly, had this nice suit on, and I'll never forget what that guy said as long as I live. He said, wah, 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 wah. And I was like, look, everybody's laughing and nudging each other, and I'm like, then I look up and he's wah, 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 wah. And I was like, I am so screwed because <laughs> I don't understand him. And uh, you know why I didn't understand him? Because he wasn't saying my name every other word. It wasn't. I thought he wasn't talking about me. And if you're not talking about me, I lose interest super fast. And I had issues and problems and it was so loud up here. It was like, <sighs> and I couldn't, you know, whatever. And then at one point he turned to these steps and he goes, these are tools for living. And I go, oh, I heard that. So I read them. And I thought, well, why did they write them in Chinese, man? I need tools. And it's like powerless and fearless inventory. Like I need tax man, lawyer, you know, fatherhood. I need those kind of help. I thought I had issues. I didn't realize that these steps addressed every one of my issues.
And as soon as that meeting was over, I sat right up. I'm sure we said some prayer. And I tried to get out of there. And a friend of my brother said, hey, aren't you Neil's little brother? And I said, yeah. And he looked at me and he goes, wow, I heard you look like crap. And I said, well, that was 30 days ago, man. And uh, and he said, can I give you a ride home? And I said, ah, that'd be great because I ran here. <laughs> and uh, and we're walking out to the car and he said, uh, I, he, I'm slowing down. He's speeding up. I'm slowing down. He's speeding up. He turns around and goes, what's your problem? And I, I didn't, I was lost. And I said, I can't, I don't think I can go back to my apartment. And I told him what was happening in my apartment. And he looked at the ground. And my brother's group was a really solid AA group. And as my mother was dying of cancer and my father was dying of heartbreak, they helped him. So he had been to my parents' house. And he said, hey, don't your parents live near here? And I said, yes. And he goes, well, we could go there. And I said, no, we can't go there, man. And if you raised your hand and you were in the first year of sobriety, I want to explain the delusion that I was living under. I want to explain something I wish somebody had taught me. My perception of going to my parents' house is, hey, I'm 30 years old. I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. I've thrown away every good thing I've ever had. I've humiliated these people over and over. They're in the end of their lives. My mom's dying of cancer. At that time, they were married to each other about 45 years. My father's beside himself. I am not going to show up on their porch today and be one more problem in one more person's life. I'm not doing it. It's the worst possible thing that could possibly happen. It cannot happen. That was my perception. And the guy dropped me off at my parents' house. I found out people in AA don't listen to newcomers very often. Uh, it's okay. There's a good reason for that. And they dropped me off. And I only went up to the front door because the only other choices were other people's parents' house. I was in, you know... The suburbs. And uh, so I walk up and I'm terrified. I want to run. And I knock on the door and I wait and I want to run. And my parents are from the Midwest. So they come to the door together. They always do that. And my mom's really sick. So it took a long time. And they open the door. And my mom's got this oxygen mask on. And my dad's standing there. And they were glad to see me. It like came out of their eyes. And it hit me. It was unmistakable that they were happy to see me. And I didn't know why. And the truth was, my parents were married for 45 years to each other. They were madly in love with each other. My mom's dying of cancer. My dad's beside himself. And the kid that they've been on their knees praying for walked up and said, will you help me? Their prayers got answered. I didn't know. How could I know? My perception and reality are usually much farther apart than I'm able to show you here at the podium. What my perception is doesn't matter. I moved in that night, and I learned lessons about love that I will never forget, ever. And would, would I do it again? I don't know. I was really, really crawling out of my skin. The first thing I did the first morning is I said, Dad, I think there's a meeting at 7. I didn't know if there's a meeting at 7. I just had to get out of my parents' house. And I said, I think there's a meeting at 7. He goes, if you're going to a meeting, you can take the car. And I went to left the uncomfortable place. I had to get away from the uncomfortable place. And I went to the other uncomfortable place, you guys. You guys were awful. You know, y'all love each other and hugging. Everyone's hugging. Everyone has nice shoes. I have terrible shoes. I have holes in my shoes. Everyone's so comfortable in their own skin. It's so great for you. I just wanted to get a gun and stick it up on, you know, blow my head off everywhere I went because I had a lot of reasons to not really feel very comfortable. 
You know, I don't know what happened in the hospital, but my one explanation, I heard an old-timer say it. He said, you know, you come into AA at 90 miles an hour, you're going to skid for a while. Yeah. And I kind of skidded through the hospital, I think. But I went to a meeting in the morning. I went home, and my dad would cry. My World War II vet dad would cry in my arms. He said, I can't live without your mom. I don't know what to do. My giant of a dad. And I didn't realize, but as I did things, and as I went to those meetings, I got more present in my body. I didn't, I couldn't see that. And he trusted me. And when someone trusts you and you're newly sober, you want to be trustworthy. You graduate to be trustworthy as much as someone will trust you. That's my experience. And I still was uncomfortable because my dad's crying. What do I do with that? I've never seen the guy cry in his life. I'd go out to the car and go to a noon meeting. And one of those meetings was a meeting that was the, it was a step study. It was the surf and sand step study. And what they did at the step study is it was men's stag and you couldn't share if you hadn't worked the step. And I thought, right on. I can just sit in the corner and think about myself. And, uh, and I got to the meeting. There was a Tuesday night. It was like my fourth meeting. So I'd been to three the day before, one that morning. And I went to the meeting and I was looking at everyone talking about me like they did at every meeting. And they're all whispering. I'm like, God damn, I'm right here, you know. And I'm filling up my coffee and I'm not looking and I filled my coffee up too much. It had surface tension. That's the only thing that held the coffee in the cup. And it's a carpeted church hall. And I'm, you know, a Catholic guy. I feel guilty all the time. So I'm like trying not to spill coffee on the carpet. And I was so hyper-conscious of it, I poured the coffee down my hand and down my arm. And then I pretended it didn't hurt. <laughs> I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. No, it's fine. Totally, totally fine. And I sat down and there was a chair there and it had a big bright spotlight on it. And I sat in that one because that's my chair. And I looked up and uh, they all want, 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 want at each other. Hour got up. I jumped up. I had to get first aid. I ran out of there. And uh, then a week went by and I thought, oh, I'll go back. This is my first cycle of meetings. And this was the first one I was returning to. I just kept picking meetings. But I, I know where that is. It's near Avenue. It's where I used to surf, actually. So I, I drove over there. I uh, ran up to the coffee maker, filled it up halfway. and went, oh, whoa. <laughs> it's enough coffee for me. Now I went to college. I live and I learn. And I walked back to my seat. Same seat's empty. Everybody sat in a circle. And I sat down and I looked up. And everybody who was there the week before was there again. And if you don't think that's important, I can tell you it meant the world to me. And I, can t- I, I looked around and I thought, oh my God. These people take this seriously. These guys have lives. These guys have happy families and wives. And these guys have cars and they have self-esteem. And they came back to loser town the second week in a row. And I looked around and it it was a 12-step call. And I couldn't share because I didn't work that step. And I was totally into that. Hours up, I'm out of there. Came back the next week. Looked around, there they were again. And I got a little cleaner inside. And I didn't do anything. I just went. And I remember one of the things that happened at that meeting was a guy shared something. It must have been the fourth step or the ninth step or something. He shared something that was really embarrassing. And he shared it rather casually. And I remember looking around thinking, this is going to be great. All these guys are going to jump all over this guy and embarrass him and give him a hard time. Because that's how I grew up. 
You know, we call that Irish psychology, you know. Like, I remember when I was a kid, I, there was a girl in my class named Mary who had a glass eye. And my dad dropped me off for school one day, and he goes, what's with that girl? And I go, Mary, she has a glass eye. And he goes, well, make fun of it. She'll get over it. <laughs> so that's how my dad thought. And, uh, and that's how I was raised. And I didn't do that because I loved Mary. I would never do that to her. But I couldn't wait for us to jump all over this guy. It was going to be great. Finally, some entertainment, you know, at Loserville. And then another guy said, well, when I did that, I was wearing a duck outfit or whatever, you know. He raised the game. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then I looked and somebody else shared something else. And I watched something I had never seen or I had never recognized it. I watched spiritual love. And I didn't know what it looked like. And it went around the room. And the next week I got there early and I stayed late and I got my sponsor out of that room and I went to his house all the time and I read the book with him. I remember he had this courtyard. He had one of those uh, apartment buildings and he was at the other end of the courtyard. And I swear, I was, I'm so self-centered. I would open the little gate. I'd call him and he'd buzz me in and I'd walk across that courtyard like everybody was staring at me through the windows going, there's one of those alcoholics coming. I just thought, you know, and I remember we did the third step and he's real like, you know, working class guy. I think he was a handyman. Now he's a contractor. But he, he goes, uh, okay, we're going to do the third step prayer. We're going to get on our knees and I'm, we're going to hold, we're going to hold hands and I'm going to say this prayer and you're going to repeat it. And I thought, no, we're not. You know, I didn't know. I just got Jeffrey Dahmer as a, as a sponsor. You know, I'm alone in his apartment. I'm going to hold hands on my knees. I, I really was kind of surprised by this. But out of my mouth came, oh, okay. And I got down on my knees and he recited the third step prayer with me. And I felt different. And I don't think I felt different because the grace of God came into my heart. I don't think that. I think I felt different because I did something I did not want to do. It was not in my playbook to make my life better. And I survived it. And I thought, there's a method to this. These guys know what they're doing. And I did my fifth step with that guy. And I went on a gazillion panels with him. He used to like to say, get in the car. And sometimes I go, well, I don't know. And he goes, oh, did you have something to do at your parents' house? <laughs> like, whatever. And one day I'm walking in with him to a meeting. I think I was like 90 days sober. It was really new. And I said, you know, I thought being a parent was going to be the worst thing ever. And, you know, I think I love Phoebe Rose more than I love myself. I can't believe how great it is being a sober dad. And I'm like 90 days sober. And he just walked right by me and got, and I thought, I did not know he was deaf in his left ear. I did. That's what I thought, because who would be so cold? And at the end of the meeting, we're walking back to his car and I go, maybe you don't understand what I was trying to tell you. And he put his hand up and he said, hey, man, how much child support do you pay? And I go, well, I live with my mom and my dad and I work at a newspaper on a loading dock and I don't even have my own car. And he goes, I know all that. How much child support do you pay? And I go, well, I don't, I don't pay any. And he goes, then you're kind of full of it, huh? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know, Matthew, you go to 10 million meetings a week. You must have figured out by now that this is a program of action. It is not a program of talk. So why don't you show me you love your daughter and then you won't have to tell me anymore. We had a super quiet ride home. 
I was plotting his death and he was living in the present moment. And, uh, and I got to my house and my parents had let me move into my old bedroom where there was a full-size poster of Eric Clapton that I put up there when I was 12 years old. And I don't know about you, but when I was newly sober, I couldn't sleep. So Eric and I would have these late night talks. And I went in there and I was telling Eric what a dick my sponsor was and how I had to get a new spot. I was just totally unashamedly what you got as a speaker tonight. Sorry. This is not a mental health competition. It's Alcoholics Anonymous. And I told him, and Eric was really wise that night. He didn't say anything. And, uh, and halfway through my pacing around my bedroom, I thought, maybe I'm mad because he's right. So I called Anna and I said, how much, you know, I should give you some money. And she said, oh, that'd be so great. I'm trying to go to college and this is harder than I thought it'd be. And I said, how much do you need? And I said, how much should I give you? And she goes, oh, <laughs> she goes, let's not do it that way. Super smart girl. I totally underestimated Anna. And I go, what do you mean? And she goes, well, let's do a percentage of your paycheck. And I go, okay, you know, I'm working at a newspaper. But she was betting on a horse. I just didn't get it. And I go, okay, what percentage? And she told me, and it was totally reasonable. And every two weeks, I would stop at one of those. I don't know if you have them up here, but we have these shops that say, you're such a loser, you got to cash your check with us, and we'll give you part of it back, and then you can go pay your bills. So I had to go to one of those, and then I had to go to her house, and I gave every two weeks, every two weeks, every two weeks. And if you're in your first year, I want to be super honest about why I did that. I did that for two reasons. One is, I never want to drink alcohol ever again for as long as I live, ever, ever again. And that's pretty important if you're an AA. But alcohol is hell to me. It's hell to me. It took me to places I never want to go back to. It made me do things I never thought I'd do. I let things be done to me. I never thought I'd let be done to me. I don't want that anymore. And my sponsor made it sound like, well, okay, you're heading towards drinking. And the other reason I paid that child support is the only spiritual experience I had for about a year and a half was holding Phoebe Rose. And I didn't get it, you know. I didn't understand it. I paid that every two weeks, every two weeks, every two weeks. And I didn't tell any of you guys. I did, told my sponsor once, and he goes, great, now just do it. And I thought, it's weird, you know, I have, there's no parade for me. We haven't had a surprise party. You know, where's the Matthew Pace child support? He's a hell of a guy article. And it didn't happen. And uh, But about a year into it, I'm playing with Phoebe. And I'm like, hey, Phoebe, I am your father. I will take you to your first day of kindergarten. And I will take you to your first day of first grade, baby, and second grade and third grade. And when you're 16, I'm going to buy you a car and humiliate you when boys come around. And when you're old enough, I'll, I'll save money. I'll send you to college. I get to know you, Phoebe. I get to be with you, Phoebe, for the rest of your life. And a year before that, a year before that, I prayed a pretty righteous prayer of God, make it so I never see these two women ever again, because I am evil. And just by going to those meetings, getting on my knees, making coffee, working steps, reading that book, I got clean inside and I could see reality not my perception but reality and reality no matter what your circumstances is always perfect my circumstances were not good if you looked at me on a like a 
you know, one of those actors' stories. Like, what's their story? Well, he lives with his parents, and he works at a uh, newspaper, and he's got a baby with a girl that they don't really get along that well, and he's in AA. <laughs> it wasn't like, right on, I want his life. You know. But I liked my life. You know why? Because I liked my own company, and I had to like my own company for years. And you know how I figured out how to like my own company? Help you. That's the trick. That's the big secret. The alcoholism is the only disease on earth where you go, God, God, I need it. I need help. I need, I need to stop drinking. And he says, try to help other people. And you think, is there another way? But my sponsor fooled me into helping other people. So now when I see things like I sponsor people and they say, I'm going to put myself at the top of my eight-step list because I clearly hurt myself the worst. You ever hear that? I've heard it about a hundred times. And I'm prone to sarcasm. And I didn't, I never say anything mean. I always say, hey man, this is what I always say. I say, why don't we move your name to the bottom of the list? You make about half of those amends and let me know if you still think you want to move yourself up. They're all amends to yourself. Every single one of them. It's about giving yourself back the character you pawned to pay for the party. It's so simple. I have paid all the money back. I owe tens of thousands of dollars. I have, by anybody's account, a charmed life. I met the woman of my dreams at a bus stop. It's a true story. I met her. I talked to her. Three weeks later, we were engaged. We got married. We've been married. In July, we'll be married for 18 years. My wife is dark-haired, British, beautiful. You know, I said to my sponsor, you know, she's not blonde, she's not anorexic, she's not addicted to heroin, she's really not my type. And he said, I know, Matthew, you've changed. And my wife is a woman of quiet dignity. My wife is a woman of kindness. My wife looks at me and accepts me exactly as I am. I don't have to lie to my wife. She knows what she's getting. And I accept her exactly as she's never been to AA. We flew to Iceland. I had to speak in Reykjavik. And she said, do I have to come to the meeting? (laughs) I'm like, well, they flew you to Reykjavik. You should come to the meeting. And she stared at the ground the whole time. And when we got out of there, she said, I never want to hear that story again. I don't know that guy. I never want to hear it again. But we have people sleeping on our couch that need a couch. We have people in our Airstream We have people that steal our stuff from time to time. We do AA. We do AA. I'm going to finish with this, you know. We lie to you in Alcoholics Anonymous in a couple of ways. If you're new, I'm going to tell you a couple of lies. Anybody here who's new have somebody walk up to them and say, everything's going to be all right? That's a lie. That's like a big lie. But if you're even half a brain, you know that's not true. Hey, you've been a criminal and a dirtbag and a self-centered moron your whole life. But if you don't drink, everything's going to be great for you. Normal people have problems, but you will not have problems. It just doesn't make sense, right? And sometimes people come up to these podiums and they say, you know, I got sober and now I'm the CFO of an airline and my kids went to Harvard and, you know, everybody's beautiful and, and butterflies fly out of my butt. Don't they? Oh, I got here and wow, the roof came off. That has not been my experience. I have been on a trajectory, that is for sure. 
My mother died in my arms. She died in my arms. And I was clean. I was there when my other two kids were born. It's amazing. If you put them in the pregnant woman in the car and you go to the right hospital, it's a whole different experience. (laughs) And I was there when my wife had a devastating stroke. And she's brain damaged and paralyzed now. Forever. So we had five years of beautiful travel all over the world. She worked for British Airways, had these great kids, and I found her on the floor 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Just changed forever. And I threw her in an ambulance, and I called my sponsor, and I called her mother in England, and I called my sister. And when I got to that hospital, we ended up going to one hospital, and then they airlifted us to another hospital So I don't know how they found me. But when I walked into that waiting room after being in the surgery with her for hours, it was filled with the men from the Monday Night Men's Day. And they were shouting without saying a word that you will not walk through this by yourself. So everything is not going to be okay. But I can tell you honestly, I don't want a different wife. And I don't want my wife any different than she is. Sometimes my perception fools me into thinking that things are not okay. And then she'll grab me in some way with some look from her eye or or something. You know, the other day we were at the dog park and my wife was walking and she has a brace up to her leg and she swings her whole side of her. And she's, you know, she looks very profoundly disabled and she's not quite all there. And she's walking towards me. And I'm looking at her coming through those pine trees and the lights hitting her through the pine trees. It's just a week ago or three weeks ago. And I'm looking at her and I think, God, she's so beautiful. And she sings. She sees me looking at her and she sings, something in the way she moves. How can you not want to eat her up? Reality is always perfect. What Alcoholics Anonymous has given me Happiness instead of good circumstances. Whatever my, I have good circumstances too. But whatever my circumstances, they don't have to affect my happiness because I have a spiritual life. If you're having a problem with the God thing, let it go. That meeting where those men helped each other, that was the God thing. This countdown where those people stood up with joy and clapped, that was the God thing. Forget the word. It's the energy that somehow made you get up this morning and not have a drink till right now. Something you couldn't ever do. That's the God thing. Just throw it out. Don't worry about it. I am filled with that. I love, I can see it. I see it. I saw it in the car. That's how we live. So when they say everything's going to be all right, they don't mean that. And if you're in your first year, what they mean is if you do these steps, no matter what happens to you, you are going to be all right. And I know that's true because I live that. Thank you very much for me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.